Hello and welcome to the PLUS podcast. What would you see if you came to the edge of the universe? Well, it's very hard to imagine just what you'd see there, so it's tempting to conclude that the universe doesn't have an edge and therefore that it must be infinite. But that's not quite right, because there are things that are finite in extent, but they still don't have an edge. Think, for example, of the surface of a sphere. It's finite in extent, you only need a finite amount of paint to paint it, but if you walk around on it, you never reach an edge. So the question of whether the universe is finite or infinite is one that still hasn't been answered, and there are mathematical models that allow for both possibilities. More generally, the question of whether anything infinite can arise in the universe is a deep one. It was recently explored at the Infinities and Cosmology Conference at the University of Cambridge. So what can we say about infinities and cosmology? We started by asking John Barrow, who's a cosmologist and a mathematician at Cambridge. The idea of studying infinities uh, in physics really began with Aristotle, who made a clear distinction between two types of infinity. So one that he called potential infinities, that he was quite happy to allow uh, to appear in descriptions of the world. So these are just like lists that never end. You never actually reach this infinity. So the ordinary numbers, one, two, three, four, five, and so on, this list goes on forever. Uh, it's infinite, but you never reach or experience the infinity. And in a subject like cosmology, there are lots of infinities like that and most people are quite happy with them. So for example the universe might have infinite size, uh, it might have an infinite past age, it might be destined to have an infinite future age. So these are all potential infinities. So they don't bite you as it were, they're just ways of saying that things are limitless, they're, they're unbounded, uh, like that list of numbers. So. What can we actually say about these potential infinities existing in our cosmos? Is there a way of seeing whether the universe is finite or infinite in extent, or whether it has a finite or infinite past and future? Here is George Ellis, a cosmologist from the University of Cape Town. Um, <clears throat> when you look at the universe, how far you can see is strictly limited because the universe has been in existence for a finite time, for 14 billion years. And light travels at the speed of light, so you can only see out to a distance essentially of 14 billion light years. It's a little bit bigger, but basically that's it. And so there's no way you can see to infinity. We can only see a small part of what it is. It's like <clears throat> from the <clears throat> tower on the top of the surface of the Earth, you can see to the horizon, you can't see beyond. Now, in that case, you can get in a plane and fly to the other side. Now, in the case of the universe, the scale is such that we can't move. Essentially, on the scale of the universe, we're stuck at one point, and we can only see the universe from one point out to a finite distance. Mm -hmm. So we can't actually say uh, whether the universe is infinite in extent. No. Um, but you just said the universe started at a, a finite point in the past. So yeah. how, how do we know that, that there wasn't anything, say, before the Big Bang? Um, <coughs> we... We don't know for certain. We can follow it back and what we can say is according to classical general relativity the universe came to a start but classical general relativity didn't apply at that time and so some quantum theory of gravity applied and we don't know what that quantum theory of gravity is that's really good at that time. So some such quantum theory says there was no beginning, others say there was and basically we are making educated guesses and we can't do the experiments that'll tell us which is correct or not because we can't get to the energies that are big enough. 
It's true that we don't have a theory that describes the moment of the Big Bang, so we don't really know what happened there. However, there is a theory that's quite commonly accepted that starts kicking in just moments after the Big Bang. It's called inflation. Anthony Aguirre from the University of California at Santa Cruz believes that that can tell us something about the extent of the universe. He talked to my colleague Rachel Thomas. So where that leaves us is we have to think about, you know, what is the, the best theory for the origin of the universe that we have? Sort of what is the theory governing the large-scale structure of the universe? And what does that suggest to us about whether it's infinite or finite? Because observationally, it seems that we're going to have a hard time seeing it directly. And interestingly, the, the theory that most people believe holds in the very early universe, a theory called inflation, has very dramatic and radical implications for whether the universe is finite or infinite. So inflation is the idea that at an early time the universe expanded exponentially. So it, it doubled in size, you know, 100 times or something at least during some very short period of time. And what people early on understood was that that inflationary theory gives a whole bunch of interest of, of suggestive predictions, many of which have come true and many of which will be tested uh, in upcoming experiments. And so that gives us a lot of confidence in inflation. But it also has very interesting side effects. And in particular, if inflation happens, it tends to go on forever. So, so that while the initial idea was, say, just 100 doublings of scale, what actually happens when you try to come up with a physical theory of inflation is that you, inflation will last, say, 100 doublings in some region, but then elsewhere, because of just spatial variations, inflation will go on for longer. And it might end somewhere else after 200 defoldings or, or 200 doublings. But somewhere else it'll go on for even longer. And you can show very generically and mathematically that it's easy to have inflation models that just go on forever. And then the regions where inflation stops could be the observable universe, but elsewhere it goes on forever. And so you have an infinite space-time, not because you've sort of postulated space-time is infinite there, but rather you've thought of a process, and that process naturally leads to an infinite space-time. And I think that's a very interesting difference because that process you can test in other ways, and if you believe that that process happened, you can then say, okay, well, that leads me to very strongly believe that space-time as a whole is infinite. So does that mean if you, if you took a snapshot of that process at a certain point it would have been finite and it's the ongoing nature of the process that's infinite? That's an excellent question. Um, one thing that is very tricky about general relativity is that it, it really undermines what we think of as, you know, we, we think of space and time as separate things, mm. but they're not in, in relativity. And it turns out that even questions like is space finite or infinite can depend on how you define space and time separately. So, so there is space-time, that's what Einstein teaches us. We can choose to cut it into space and time separately in many different ways. They're all fundamentally valid, they'll all give the same results to any particular experiment we think of, but they have sort of different intellectual implications, um, and some are much more convenient for certain purposes than others. So if you've got an infinite space-time, there will often be certain ways that you can cut it up so that it looks like the universe is, say, finite and expanding forever um, and getting sort of infinitely big, but at any, any time it's finite. 
at the same time, the same, very same space-time can be chopped up in such a way that at any time it's spatially infinite. So it's an infinite expanding universe. And in inflation, it turns out that once inflation stops, the more natural way, that is the way in which the universe is close to homogeneous, it looks spatially infinite. So, so inflation very naturally gives rise to homogeneous, infinite universes that would evolve into something like, like what we see. So this, I think, is really neat. It's really neat that we can, we can get sort of suggestive evidence for, for such a you know, rich and, and multifaceted and interesting picture where the universe is infinite. The question of whether the universe is infinite in extent concerns one type of Aristotle's infinities, potential infinities, which we can imagine but never actually see. But there's another type of infinity that Aristotle talked about, actual infinity, where something localized, something that we can actually measure, becomes infinite. One situation in which such an actual infinity could arise in the universe is within a black hole, which forms when a massive object, like a star for example, starts collapsing in on itself with nothing stopping it. Theory would suggest that this leads to an infinite density of mass at a single point. Do such infinities exist in the universe? Here is John Barrow again. Now a black hole is not necessarily a solid object, so it's just a, a sort of surface uh, in the universe, which if you go inside it, you can't get back out, because you would need to move faster than the speed of light to escape uh, from its gravitational pull. So what happens is that our big cloud of stuff is collapsing and getting denser and denser and denser, and eventually this surface will form around it that we call the horizon. And once you're inside the horizon, things may be uh, for a very large black hole that's, uh, say, a billion times the mass of the sun, uh, the conditions would just be like they are in this room. They're nothing odd. You know, yeah. it's the density of air when you pass through that horizon. Uh, but if you tried to backtrack and leave, you would find that you couldn't do it. Um, so what then happens once you're inside the black hole, things do continue to move towards unlimitedly high density at the centre. But if you're on the outside, you can't see any of that. It's hidden from you, and its effects are insulated. They can't affect the outside universe. Now, long ago, Roger Penrose made a conjecture that's known as cosmic censorship. And that conjecture was basically that if singularities or infinities were to form, in the universe and nothing can stop them, then they're always trapped within these horizons. So they can't be, what people said, naked singularities. So you, so you can't have an infinity that affects us on the outside. Now in various cases this is proved, but it's far from being proved in general. It's a very difficult mathematical problem. It's an interesting thought that nature might actually shield us from the infinite. But usually when we think about infinity, we think about the infinitely large. What about the infinitely small? Or to put it differently, the infinitely divisible. If we had super accurate rulers and pencils, could we keep dividing a line segment into smaller pieces forever and ever, creating pieces that are as small as we like? Here is George Ellis again. If you hold your fingers 10 centimeters apart, 
And if you believe that there's a real line of points, like in mathematics, between your fingers, there's an uncountable infinity of points between your fingers. Now, that's completely unreasonable. I believe that's a mathematical idea which does not correspond to the physics. And, and Richard Feynman said that the most important thing he would want to leave to future generations, if he had to just leave one thing to them, was the statement, matter is made of atoms. And I think we have good reason to believe that there's a similar statement about space-time, that space-time is made of atoms, which means if you hold your fingers that part apart, there's a very large number of physical points, but it is not infinite, and it's not uncountable. So there's the smallest possible length scale. So there's probably a smallest possible length scale, yes. Mm -hmm. And um, when or how would we be able to test that assumption? Um, the idea. It's very difficult to test it. The one way we might be able to test it is the following. If we look at very, very distant sources of light in the universe, um, towards the limits of what we can detect, that light has had to travel a really, really large distance to us. And if there were very small fluctuations of the space-time associated with this discrete structure, then maybe you might be able to see them in really, really distant objects. That's about the best option mm. that you would have. Our best physical theories do indeed support George Ellis's idea that there is a shortest measurable length. It's called the Planck length and it's absolutely tiny. It's around 10 to the minus 35 meters. Current measurement instrument cannot come anywhere near resolving something so small. But the idea is that even in theory, even if we had very, very powerful instruments, we could never measure anything smaller than the Planck length. But zooming out of this tiny picture, George Ellis made an important distinction between the mathematical concept of infinity, for example there being infinitely many points on a mathematical line, and physical infinity. John Barrow points out that there is also a third type of infinity. Nowadays, we would distinguish between mathematical infinities, between physical infinities, which we've been talking about, and sort of transcendental infinities, you know, that um, theologians or philosophers might talk about. Although those transcendental infinities are what the average person on the street, if you mention infinity to them, they feel quite at home with this. They think they know What's what this is about. What's an example length of a, one of those? Well, so, sort of everything. You know, the, the sort of cosmic everything. Um, so, yeah. I mean, there's a joke, you know, that, that uh, you know, what did the, uh, what did the uh, mystic say to the hot dog salesman? Make me one with everything. <laughs> so this, uh, so there is this notion which people are familiar with. That, mm, that, yeah, just totality of... Yeah, the sort of totality of everything. And, and in many religious traditions, that totality might even be the same thing as... As, as God or some other uh, sort of cosmic ultimate. Um, so that's a different thing to what physicists and mathematicians are trying to, to deal with, um, which is more specific. And you can find, I mean, you can look through, um, you know, the, the history of ideas and mathematics and physics, and it would be an option for people to say, I believe in mathematical infinities, um, or not, or I believe or disbelieve in physical infinities, or I believe and disbelieve in any other type of transcendental mm. infinity. And I once remember looking at this, and, and you can find every permutation of beliefs and disbeliefs, the, uh, so then, uh, the three. Yeah. So you've got two to the power three, you know, you've got eight uh, 
options. So which ones do you believe in? Well, mathematical infinities are, are okay. I think I probably believe in them all. <laughs> in the sense it's hard... I mean, the, the case of um, physical infinities, I think the interesting one. Uh, mathematical infinity is just a matter of definition, really. Yes. Anthony Aguirre agrees that infinities certainly have a role to play in our mathematical descriptions of the universe, and he doesn't want to completely shut the door on physical infinities either. I think um, it's certainly true that we can develop theories that have you know, infinity in them that can be perfectly useful. It seems to me that um, whether the universe can be infinite whether we like it or not, it's certainly inconvenient in a lot of ways. And it's certainly true that as finite beings we can only experience a sort of finite part of it. But I can't see any reason to sort of place limits on whether the universe can be finite or infinite in principle. George Ellis, by contrast, does not believe that physical infinities exist. And that has important consequences, in his opinion, for the mathematical arguments you can use within physics. He refers to a thought experiment due to the mathematician David Hilbert. Suppose you have a hotel with an infinite number of rooms, and suppose that the hotel is full. The paradox is that you can still fit a new person in. You simply move every person in the hotel one room along. So the person from room one goes into room two, the person in room two goes into room three, and so on. And since there isn't the largest number, you can do this without making anyone homeless, and then you can fit the new person into room one. Because of paradoxes like this one, Ellis thinks that you have to be very careful when you use infinities in a physical context. I make a distinction. There, there are some times when people talk about infinity when they, all they really mean is a very large number and they're just using infinity as a code word for a large number. Now in that case, I think it's more informative to make a guess what that large number is and to talk about that large number, not infinity. Now, there are some cases wherein people use infinity in its uh, deep sense, in the paradoxical sense. And the paradoxical sense is, for instance, Hilbert's the, 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 the hotel, the hotel which is full of infinite number of people and you can still put more people in because it's an infinite hotel. There's these paradoxical things. In my opinion, if a physics argument or any other argument depends on those paradoxical arguments, then it is a false argument and it should be replaced by something else. So it seems that there is no consensus as to whether infinities exist in the physical world and there's plenty to argue about. This is something that prompted Rachel Thomas to ask the following question of Anthony Aguirre. What was interesting when we were um, talking to one of the organizers of the conference, John Barrow, and he was saying, was describing how the people come into the conference today are a mixture of, of physicists but also people <coughs> who specialize in philosophy. And mm -hmm. um, what is it? Is it important for those two fields to come together and to think about these sorts of questions? I think it's very important to, to get physicists and philosophers together. Um, I think there's there's a a sort of reaction that that a lot of my physics colleagues have about philosophers that they're they kind of don't know any physics and they're just kind of saying things about physics and they don't really know what they're talking about and criticizing physics but they don't really understand it and i you know i think there may once have been some truth to that and i'm sure that there is now but the philosophers that i talk to all know lots of physics they're, they're not doing the same sort of detailed you know, engagement with sort of the this particular subtopic of physics or that that's fashionable or connected with experiments and so on, but they know lots of physics, and they, I see, as being specialists in thinking about 
the sort of intellectual foundations of those questions, looking at them from a slightly bigger and, and different point of view than a more empirically or, or sort of pragmatically engaged physicist would. And I think that's incredibly valuable. And, and I don't know, I certainly enjoy talking with them and feel like their perspective and their knowledge of, of the foundations and history of scientific ideas is certainly very valuable to me when I hear it. One thing that is most definitely finite is the amount of time we have for this podcast. So we leave you with some hopefully intriguing thoughts, which you can explore further at the PLUS website at plus.maths.org infinity. My name is Marianne Freiberger. Thanks for listening and bye bye.